Today on The Ticker Tapes, we hear from Corey, who, in June 2016, married the love of his life, Alice, in a beautiful ceremony in Italy. One week later, back home in England, Corey was playing ice hockey in South London when he suffered a sudden cardiac arrest. The London Air Ambulance was in between missions. They were in the area and they decided to land right in front of Streatham uh, Arena. They landed right on the street. My hockey mates, they came out uh, with their blades on, Hmm. ran on the concrete, took everything they could from the London Air Ambulance, Hmm. helped the paramedics, uh, the emergency doctor, get onto the ice and kind of glide them to me. From the British Heart Foundation, I'm Bill Snadden. On the ticker tapes, we hear from people living with heart and circulatory conditions. On this episode, Corey recalls the moment he almost died there on the ice rink and the tough road to recovery in the years that have followed. As he says, he's had to learn how to live again. Can you take me back to June 2016, to the little city of Notto in Italy, where... You got married. Yeah, sure. Yeah, June 2016, on the 17th of June uh, that year, Alice, who's my uh, my wife, at the, obviously fiancé at the time, we decided to have a little Italian wedding in, in Sicily in this really nice tiny village uh, yeah, called Notto. My wife's a big Italiophile, and I, I love Italy too, so we've, we've been to Sicily many times, and we really do love it. And my family, my close family, it was a small wedding. It was about 30 people. My parents, Alice's parents and our close friends, and that was that was it. It was really touching. We got married actually by the, uh, by the mayor in this beautiful town hall, which is basically covered with these ornate glass mirrors. And it's, it's just was a sensational, very small, beautiful wedding. Mm-hmm. After that, we it was a really hot day. It is just, it was like 36, 37. And uh, we 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 strolled through the 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 town and then we met everyone for dinner and we had this unbelievable dinner at a local restaurant that we knew the the chef and and he's the owner and chef and the sommelier and we we really got along with them and so there's like yeah we'll close a restaurant for you and so we had the whole restaurant to ourselves that night. Hmm. The VIP treatment, Corey. <laughs> it was really nice. And I think everyone really enjoyed it. And some of my friends from Canada, they they couldn't comprehend how good the food was. It blew them away. So it was really, it wasn't fine dining in any way. It was just really great Sicilian food. Mm-hmm. I highly recommend it. So yeah, it was a wonderful day. Um, couldn't have asked for a better day. Sounds perfect. And um, I hear that your proposal to Alice was quite romantic. Can you just set, <laughs> set the scene for us? Yeah, so it's funny. So we did we didn't have a long engagement. It was the engagement was only about eight months or seven months. It was back oh no, six months. Yeah, it was back in January of the same year and we were in Budapest in Hungary. Um and um I wanted to do something quite romantic because we, we both decided already that we were interested to get together mm-hmm. uh for, you know, to get married and stuff. And so I said, um, well, I'm going to figure out a good spot to do it. And I'm a bit of a suck for romance. So mm-hmm. I, uh, we were at the Budapest National, like the Hungarian National Opera in Budapest. And we were watching um, this uh, play, uh, this opera called King Lear. And it was brutal. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, it was sung in German, but with uh, Hungarian subtitles. Neither, Alice speaks German, but I have no idea what's being going on. They had English Sounds subtitles like heavy, too. Heavy going, Corey. It, it was a yeah, serious drama, and mm. I was like, it was really hot in the opera too. So I was there was people beside me that were falling asleep. I was I was just like, oh my god, this is brutal. So I looked at Alice and I said, hey, the bar is free right now. Mm. Um, why don't we just go get a drink? This is just killing us. So we <laughs> we left and we had a drink in this beautiful empty like hall mm. an enormous hall could feel like a thousand people it was ornate beautiful and and uh we got served some champagne and then as we're going down the stairs to leave the opera this is like halfway through the opera we were just we were, we were done we were not opera, opera people mm, it was time it was time and we left and then i thought that was a great point so i hit a camera on the stairwell assuming this was going to happen mm. um earlier uh, in the opera but i was expecting it to happen at the end but okay but you you you'd pre-planned and set <laughs> yeah, up the camera in this yeah, spot yeah yeah okay yeah so we were going down the stairwell and i was like sweet it's empty it's even better it's going to catch up the audio i don't mm. have a mic a good mic or anything but it was just 
that was the thing. And then I proposed and she said, yes. And it was just really sweet. And then I got, I ran up the stairs and she says, where are you going? And I pulled the camera out. She's like, oh, geez. <laughs> How did she feel when she saw the camera? She thought it was cute. She yeah. thought it was cute. Yeah. Uh, and then lovely. after that, we just went out for a nice dinner and, we, and uh, yeah, c'est la vie. Very sweet and romantic. Um, mm. And uh, all went well. How did you meet Alice? Yeah. So being Canadian, I was studying and, and, um, uh, near near where I lived, mm -hmm. I, I grew up in the Toronto area, and uh, I went to University of Toronto, and I met her uh, on exchange in one, when I was um, in my later years studying, and mm -hmm. she was the same age as me, coming over for a study abroad, and we met at a kind of like a student residence hall, and it was really interesting because a lot of her friends were who she's made uh, and still still speaks with today mm. were were thinking i don't know are you sure you want this guy you sure <laughs> and uh aunt friends great yeah yeah and so but she was she she was very adamant it was really really sweet and so mm. uh, we went on a first uh, i i was an idiot at the time and i was like oh of course uh, first date this is in the winter we should go ice skating because mm. i'm i'm canadian and ice skating is as simple as walking for me. makes sense yeah so that was stupid because i didn't think of um the british people are not commonly ice skating as much as canadians no, or at least not, have not their natural it. habitat it's not their natural <laughs> so she's <laughs> i feel bad because we're in this public skating arena she's never skated before she's she obviously really wants to hang out with me. But you get and to hold her hand. I get to hold her hand and do all those things, but she is like wobbling mm. um, and she can't deal with it. So we get her the little like pet penguin <laughs> to, to skate around with. And uh, she brings her friends for support and they're all looking at me like I'm some idiot that brought her out to embarrass her. And I actually mm. just didn't put the two together. So not a great first date, <laughs> but, you <laughs> but made a, it mem through. a memorable one. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we made it through. Um and we had uh, we after that point we started hanging out with some more and especially we met a bit like we had a couple more encounters especially at a friend's birthday party and then we hit it off. Um, we did long distance for some time. We did. Um, she went back to London at the end of that year, and then I stayed to work. And mm -hmm. then um, she came over after she finished her masters. Lovely. Uh, and then and then a few years later, you're in Italy. Yeah, tying uh, tying the knot, Corey. Yeah, yeah. So like a, two years of that, and then I moved to London to be with her because long term. Because she moved back, and then we uh, stayed in London together. Mm -hmm. And if we jump back to June 2016, the beautiful wedding, you come back to London, and a week later you're playing ice hockey um, at a rink in South London, and you collapse. Can you set the scene and tell me what happened that evening? Yeah, sure. So. Yeah, we come back from the honeymoon. We're all, you know, newlyweds, really nice. And um, we, uh, I have, I play on an ice hockey team called the Lon I call the London Devils. It's just an amateur team, but mm -hmm. we, we're doing a. Um, but you're quite a good uh, ice hockey player. You, you played competitively yeah, for a number yeah, of years. Yeah, I did. Yeah, yep. my dad was an excellent player, so I was really lucky to have a lot of good um, exposure as a kid. Mm -hmm. And then uh, anyway, so I was playing in this like just a regular men's league here. And uh, but the thing was, is it was like a championship game, and it's really funny. So, despite it being a men's league, when it be, when it gets into the playoffs and, and and tournaments and stuff, it's literally do or die. These these people become animals. <laughs> mm. They start they start thinking about winning more than anything, and, and so it gets very competitive. Sure. So it's a lot of fun though. And then so we we were at Stratham Ice Rink, and um, we were playing uh, the London Rangers, mm -hmm. which is another team, another men's league and uh, men's team in. Um, in London and mm -hmm. anyways we're playing and I, I brought friends over to, to watch and because it was quite a quite a like significant game mm. and um, some of my friends never saw me play and they, they, they saw for the first 10 minutes they're, they're like Corey you're, you're not really playing well mm. playing what position bad. what position are you I played defense mm -hmm. and I'm I'm quite a fast skater but they saw that I was getting beat left yeah. right center and it you was really sluggish unusual. I was sluggish and I was not on form and it wasn't mm. I wasn't a it wasn't like I was feeling unwell that day. I actually felt quite normal. I just mm. felt like a decent sleep, no, no issue. I th so I didn't have any illness. Like just I didn't thought feel you were sick. out of form. Yeah, I just thought maybe because of the wedding and the honeymoon, I was just out of shape or something. Yeah. But it, it, it. So, anyways, at one point, about like I don't know how long in, maybe a, a, a one period in or, or one and a half periods in, I was trying to. I was chasing someone for a the puck. I don't remember this well. And it, the fa a face off was happening in our defensive zone. I think. Mm. And I, um, I just collapsed. I just fell uh, right onto my head. Uh, hmm. Luckily, I have a helmet on. 
and it's on the hard ice. And so I fell and, and people were like, whoa, 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 what happened? And I don't remember any of this. This is all from what other people have told me. And mm. so then my, my teammates saw me fall and they tried to, um, they tried to get to me and, and pick me up and say, okay. And I basically shot up and uh, fell again. Mm. Uh, I basically stood up really quick, like an adrenaline boost and then fell again. And at that point, I think my body started going into like gasping for breath and, and things like this because I, I, my heart stopped. Mm. Um, and Alice is in the crowd. Alice is in the crowd. And um, I'm going through what's called ventricular fibrillation. So the mm. heart is basically just vibrating, but not really pumping. It's just like, it looks like it's like if you're tingling your fingers and just moving them slightly, that's what my heart was doing. So it wasn't moving any blood around. Mm. And so I lost all the blood uh, oxygen to my brain and that caused me to, to collapse. So the worst thing was obviously Alice and my friends were all w witnessing this. And yeah. um, at first... The, the crowd didn't know what was going on. They thought maybe I was having a seizure or something else like that. Some of the crowd supposedly were were calling 999 and, and, and saying, um, well, there's a head injury, there's a head injury, or, or he, he, this person stopped breathing or things like that. And so there's a lot of confusing messages being sent out to the first responders. Mm. And then at the same time, my hockey mates, they they quickly responded so i really am grateful for them um um there's one person on the on the team mm. his name's rich and he um he basically came in and gave me cpr immediately he just did cpr training mm. uh a week ago or something for his kids for a football mm. team for he was coaching and so he was familiar with it so he instantly knew that there was something wrong so he started giving me cpr mm. and then there was this this person, his name was, I later found out his name was Daniel, and he was kind of the, the lifeguard on duty at the time hmm. for the Streatham Leisure Center. And so he, he kind of knew, all, he had all of his safety training, so he was obviously informed somehow that there was an emergency, and he, he got onto the ice, the, the ice hockey teammates carried him over, and he started getting CPR with Rich, and um, that kept me at least giving, keeping my blood going to my brain hmm. while I was on the ice. Everyone's panicking. My wife, you know, she's my friend Alfred. He takes her away. Um, mm. It's her close friend, really close friend. And he takes her away because we think that I'm dead now. Because mm. um, it's been some time. How long do you think it's been now? I don't know. Mm. I mean, it must have been about 40 minutes mm. at that time, maybe longer. Because what happened was when the phone call happened... What happened was this was this was around like 6 p.m. or 6.30 p.m. in the middle of summer, so it was still light out. And what happened was the London Air Ambulance was in between missions. Um, and they get calls for severe trauma, right? You mm. know, very terrible things, the gunshots and, and road accidents and what have you. And um, they got a call about a severe head trauma. So they were in the area and they decided to land right in front of Streatham. Uh, arena and they landed right on the street hmm. and that's very common to them so they just landed straight away and my hockey mates they came out uh, with their blades on hmm. ran on the concrete took everything they could from the london air ambulance hmm. helped the paramedics and the, uh, the emergency doctor uh get onto the ice and kind of kind of glide them to me so they wouldn't fall over so they get there and then <sighs> You know, it's been a really long time, and Daniel and Rich have been working on me really hard. They also had a defibrillator there. They did, mm -hmm. which was good, and they used it, but it it wasn't effective. Oh, right. Um, they could have been because it wasn't too wasn't powerful enough. Mm -hmm. um, because I I'm not a big lad, but I have a uh, I'm quite a big heart um, mm -hmm. size wise because I do a lot of athletics, so it just wasn't able to get me going. Mm -hmm. So the paramedics they show up and. Um, it's obviously terrifying for everyone. There's not, there's a complete silence in the arena other than what's happening. You know, everyone's frozen except what's happening. And then, mm. and you've effectively been dead or close to dead for about yeah. 45 minutes now. Yeah. 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 And so no, still no heartbeat. So this really wonderful man named Gareth, who was the, um, who was the uh, lead doctor or the mm -hmm. emergency doctor at the time, he kind of, because he's had so much experience, he was able to kind of discern what the problem was quite quickly. He looked at me and he saw no trauma. So he said, okay, rule that out. He saw no kind of wounds. So rule that out. 
saw me gasping for breath, just did an ECG, found that there was nothing going on. And he was like, all right, this is a cardio, a sudden cardiac, like death. Sudden cardiac know, arrest. Is, sudden cardiac arrest, sorry, sudden cardiac arrest. Mm-hmm. And he, uh, he was like, all right, we need to, we know what we need to do. We're going to give him norepinephrine. We're going to give him, you know, a huge injection. We're going to get him. Adrenaline. Adrenaline, basically. It's like adrenaline, yeah. And he put it right in, uh, give me a, some big shocks. They had like a big CPR machine. It's like Oof. this, literally looks like a compressor. Hmm. And they put it right on you and it comp- it's like a, almost like a steel mill press. It just goes right on you. And hmm. uh, that kept me going. I don't know how I didn't break ribs, but I ca- my whole chest caved, which is hmm. standard for this because they hmm. need to get you that. And then the they gave strong me strong chest, Corey. You got a strong yeah, chest. I don't know, yeah. flexible chest, more like it. Hmm. <laughs> and then uh, it it got me back about forty five minutes. Okay. And there's um, a heartbeat now. Yeah, there's a heartbeat. They obviously had me on oxygen. They put me into a coma immediately. Mm-hmm. I don't really know why the comas work, but they basically slow me down to keep me cool. Mm-hmm. So one of the best things about the whole situation was that I, I did this on the ice, and so I, my brain was kept cool, which reduces brain damage. Okay. Uh, and so this whole event happens. They, they cut off all my hockey clothes so they can get me uh, you know, on the, doing the CPR, and then they, they take me away. And then all the hockey mates, they follow to for me to stretch them they don't put me in the air ambulance they put me just on a regular ambulance now that i'm kind of stable mm. i'm obviously i'm knocked out there's nothing left of me right now in terms of being conscious mm. and then um they take me just to, to tooting so i go to st george's hospital and because uh, that's nearby Stratham. i go into uh icu on the um kind of emergency ward and um it was quite quite serious they didn't think that i was going to make it it was really back and forth gareth obviously showed up the hockey mates showed up um you know alice was absolutely traumatized Mm. as she would and they no one could see me at this time because i was being treated they didn't know at that point if i was gonna survive even though they kind of resuscitated my heart because it was such a significant time without a heartbeat Mm. that if i had hypoxic brain damage to such a degree i would probably just be either a vegetable or not be able to sustain living hmm. so they put me in a coma and they didn't know anything at that point there's really nothing you can do at that point other than keep monitoring and, and keep you stable hmm. and they check at this point they do tons of investigations on you to see like hey you know do you have a pulmonary embolism maybe you had a huge stroke you know hmm. maybe maybe you had a heart attack um because they're ruling out all the obvious things but gareth was really certain that it was a channelopathy. He was like, this is just too rare. You know, there's nothing wrong with this kid. Um, and then he just collapses. A so, channelopathy is in something electrical in the heart. Yeah, like an electrical problem. Mm. If you're enjoying our podcast and would like to support the BHF's life-saving research, you can do so at bhf.org.uk slash donate pod. After the slash, that's D-O-N-A-T-E-P-O-D. And thank you to all those who already give. We truly appreciate it. And now, back to the conversation. And just going back to that that part of you being on the ice and and perhaps helping to keep any brain damage um, at bay, how does that work? Yeah, so obviously the CPR was a huge thing because mm. you need to do CPR right away. Mm. And without that, you wouldn't be talking to I me now. I would be dead. Yeah. So without, no without, Rich, without Rich and without Dan jumping yeah. into action, you would not be here. And also I was lucky that all my hockey mates are burly guys so they could take rotations mm. to keep me going. Mm. And yeah. But being on the ice was also, you've been told, a huge help. It was a huge help, yeah. So the cooler you're, you, they want to, even when you're in coma or when you have brain damage, they want to cool your body. Okay. Uh, it helps reduce brain damage, and and there's some science behind it, but it's very interesting. So that re- that really helps. So I had all the ducks in a row, mm-hmm. really. Um, and then three days in a coma, and they try and wake you up. What happens there, uh, from what you've been told? What happened there? Um, the first time they try and um, yeah, so they try you, and uh, they try and wake, wake me up, wake you up, and I got really, I was obviously really confused and really like aggressive because I didn't know what was going on. Mm. I didn't even know, I didn't know much about anything. I just was 
completely out of it. You know, I've had tons of painkillers and so forth. So yeah. I was really, I tried to get out of the bed. I had all these kind of catheters and what have you, you know, mm. I couldn't move. Um, I read a quote, Corey, from a, a piece online. You said, I couldn't remember who I was, didn't know where I was. I thought I was a teenager again. Yeah, that did happen. That was the time. That was the second time they tried to wake me up. <laughs> First time, supposedly, I just was like a bull in a china shop. So they put me back down. Yeah. And that was that was frightening. And then I think a day later, they woke me up again. And then um, they took me off ICU at that point. I think I was now in the cardiac okay. ward. And they and at that time, I didn't. I just didn't know anything about myself. It was like, it was like I had complete amnesia. Um, what does that feel like? It's hard to explain. It's like you're a prisoner in your own body. Scary? Yeah, it's very scary. Um, Disorientating. Yeah, I mean, it's you don't because you don't know what you're missing. You just feel this like, what what's going on? Who am I? You know, it, it's it's panic. And did you know Alice at this stage? Well, this is really interesting. So. <laughs> I was very lucky because of all the things I told you already. So it could have been much worse. But when, when I woke up the second time, there were two things that happened. So the nurse who was taking care of me, you know, they were really prepared to put me back down if anything happened. And, mm. I, and I looked up at the ceiling and um, they said, what, do you know who you are? And there was a piece of paper on the other side of the, on the wall that said, you are Corey Johnson. You, were, you have lived in London for so many years. You had a cardiac arrest, you know, and just trying to tell me who I was. Mm. You were 27 as well at this stage. Yeah, and I said, I thought I was 18 at the time. Mm. And uh, I remember um, the nurse woke me up and I was looking at the ceiling and they said, Corey, do you, oh, sorry, he didn't say Corey. They said, do you know who you are? And I said, I'm Corey. And they said, oh, okay, so he doesn't know his name. And then they said, do you know what you do for a living? And I said, I'm a ceiling engineer. And they thought that was so funny because I was trying to make a joke about it that they realized that maybe I've got my brain back because humor is a really mm. deep level part of the brain at the front of your brain. And if, that's, if that goes away, then you know you have brain damage at the front of your brain. And did so. you know you were telling a joke at that stage? Yeah, I did. Yeah. Did anyone <laughs> laugh? Yeah, the nurse laughed. And then the, um, my Alice, well, she's right beside me and she said, do you remember who I am? And I said, of course I do. And she said, what's, what's my name? And I just told her, I just said, your name is Munchkin because that's her oh, nickname. Gory. Uh, yeah, it's adorable. So I know. And then I said, she said, do you remember, do you remember what happened? Do you, do you know what happened to us? And I said, no. So she told me a bit. And then she says, do you know what we did last week? And I said, we got married. Hmm. And she said, do you remember any of it? And I said, yes, you look so beautiful. Oh. And tears? Yeah. Remarkable that that memory stuck, and, but you still thought you were 18 and didn't really know who you were, but that memory was solid. Yeah, the memories are patchwork. So when you have memory loss, it's not like it's all in a sequence, right? It's not like a film where you've lost the last like half hour. It's, it's like somebody took the film and cut it in random strips mm. and gave it to you and said, this is your new life. Mm. So I have short pieces of memory or they're gone, you know, and then I have parts that are new that that even new stuff sometimes I can't remember. So mm. it's not it's not just like it stopped on time one and then just there's, you know, someone wiped it out and then said start again. It's not like that. Yeah. This might be a, a good point to jump to any sort of personality changes that you've noticed since. We can come back to some of the recovery, but how's the, how have you, Corey, um, changed since this? It took a long time to get to anywhere so that I probably want to preamble this. Mm. How I am today, you know, what is it? Six years, basically. I am so much better than I was then. It takes a long time to kind of get a personality and kind of similarity to who you were before in some mm. ways. And you'll never be the same. So it's not, at the beginning, I was very aggressive. Um, mm. I lost a lot of confidence. Um I lost a lot of my kind of ability to articulate really well. I lost, I became more impulsive. Um, I became more direct, uh, more angry, mm -hmm. uh, much more like 
I don't know how to describe it, like primal, like things upset me, then I wanted to deal with them immediately. I, you, before that, I was more timid and uh, reserved. I wasn't the most timid, but I was really reserved in some things, and I would mm. hold my opinion about things. And then after that, there was no way to hold anything in. You lost a filter. Yeah, I lost the filter. I got more angry. Mm. Um, but you weren't trying to be rude. It just came out at, it's just a bit that out. way. It just came out. And, lear- and learning that it, you, you become less self-conscious because mm. you just don't have that kind of extra minute or extra second in your head going, wait a minute, is this a good idea? So, mm. um, But I have to say that, you know, what's really, really important, I think the message I really want to say is the from the day that I was dis, discharged, which was like a, a month after, because I got a ICD implanted and and they had to put all that in so that I if I have another one I can I can be protected. Another cardiac arrest. Yeah, another cardiac arrest. Um, that for the first year, you know, you're paranoid about having another one. Mm. You know, you're always thinking that death's shadow is over you. And how does that affect your daily life? Yeah, it's just. It's really, it it is not, um, it's not something you can ever relate to. It's only people who have this, they know how terrifying it is. And, mm. and um, it depends obviously how, how, how dangerous the condition you have in terms of frequency. Mm. You really have to trust the device that has been embedded in you. And yeah. it, that can be really discerning because it's like... This is a mini defib, it, a little machine yeah, it's, that's, it's, that's implanted it, under the skin in your chest. Yeah, and... It, I know that, you know, everyone says, well, you could be hit by a bus, the same kind of day. It's not, it's not the same because now it's so present in your mind. So it's hard to sleep. It's you know? present in your mind and in your body. Yeah. You know, and like they, there's common things that you learn about. For me, for Brigada syndrome, which was what I was diagnosed with in the end, was, mm. um, you know, don't eat a big meal before going to bed. Don't drink heavily um, or don't uh, exercise heavily. Don't... Mm. Uh, don't uh, be dehydrated. Um, if you're ill, definitely don't do anything strenuous. Um, if you're in the cold, don't, you know, again, do anything strenuous. Um, get your sleep right. And yeah, okay, you try and sleep when people tell you that Brigada syndrome, a lot of people die in their sleep mm. or, or die on the toilet or, you know, die in points of relaxing. It's like, wow, that's great. So you're a bit scared of going to sleep <laughs> at times. Yeah. Mm. So I was lucky though mm. because I took a very... I took a, a quite a distinct, I don't know, distinct, but I took an approach where I said, you know, this happened already. Mm. It, it, if it happens again, it happens. I can't stop that. Mm. And worrying about it isn't going to stop it. Yeah. So you kind of have to take like a Mark Twain approach, which is like, if you worry, if you worry about something that never really happens, you're wasting your time. Mm. And, um, I, I thought in my head, I'm like, if I worry about it, um, I'm, all I'm doing is giving myself more anxiety, but yep. the end result's the same. I either have another one or I don't. Worrying's not going to stop that. Yep. So I take precautions, but I try not worry about it. So mm. I'm not free living. You know, I'm not doing all those things I just said. But um, it, you have to take it that way. Sure. You, you have to. If you don't, you you go nuts. You'll and go you nuts. were and you were 27, and you were fit and healthy, an athlete. Uh, running a lot, yep. playing a lot of sport, and this came out of the blue. There were no warning signs. Your first symptom was no a, a sudden signs. cardiac arrest. Nothing. Nothing. And, uh, I mean, that was a, not really because, I mean, in the 90s and the 2000s when I was, a, you know, a kid, th- there wasn't any screening for this. Mm. You know, they didn't think about it. Mm. There were, there were, there is evidence that kids were dying from sudden cardiac death or young adolescents or young adults, but it, it was never really understood what you could do. And the, there's a charity called Cry and there's a couple other charities. So that's called Cardiac Risk in the Youth. And they work on screening uh, young adolescents and children on uh, rare uh, cardiac disorders and mm. in for instance if I had an ECG when I was like 15 maybe this would have shown up maybe not mm. um, because Brigada is a bit of a ghost like um, uh, symptom whereas some days even right now I won't have anything wrong with my okay. ECG it'll look normal and then other days it'll look like spaghetti and just so, tell me tell me what is Brigada syndrome this is what you were diagnosed with um, after about yeah. three weeks or so in hospital lots of tests tell, yeah. tell me what it was like the moment you were diagnosed and then just tell me 
what Brigada syndrome is. Yeah. Okay. So obviously when I was in the hospital, they didn't know what was going on with me, right? So mm. they did a bajillion tests, you know, they ruled out all like the physical ones, like the, the stroke or a PE and all that stuff. Um, so they did angiogram, they did like an MRI. Um, they wanted to see maybe I had like a heart attack. So they checked like troponin, which is like a standard um, kind of biomarker for this. Anyways, so mm. they do all this and they rule it all out. So they're like, okay, this is really weird. And they look at the ECG and they're like, holy moly, um, this doesn't look right. And then they check the ECG the next day and they're like, it looks normal. Hmm. So at that point, they refer me to an electrophysiologist called uh, Dr. Elijah Baer, who's kind of really well known in mm. the circle of Brugada syndrome and some other syndrome. And he's a, um, and stuff. funded by the British Heart Foundation for quite a lot of yeah. research he's done um, on Brugada over a number of years. Exactly. So he, I was very, again, lucky that I'm in the same, mm. I'm in the same hospital that Dr. Bear works in. Like, how lucky is that, right? Mm. You know, if I was in somewhere else, it's very unlikely that this I'm global specialist diagnosed. is on hand. I know, for you. right? Yeah. <laughs> like, how lucky? So I'm so lucky, right? I, I think of it that way, because out of hospital cardiac arrests, out of a hundred, ninety-six don't survive really mm. well, and if they do survive, it's not as as good as I've. Recovered. Yeah, it's about one in ten, roughly, in the UK. It's yeah. um, not a great statistic. So, no, is it terrible. is it Professor Doctor Bear who, who does deliver this news, the diagnosis to you? Yes. So we do a bunch of tests, and there's some pretty pretty difficult tests you have to go through. There's something called an angiomeline test or flaconide test, where they they basically give you a, a sodium channel blocking drug, and then look at your ECG, and you feel terrible going on it, but. You're being monitored and, and someone's right on you looking to see if you're going to have a cardiac arrest because you, you could have one having it. But you need to do it to know if you have Brigada syndrome because it kind of exposes it. Mm. So they have the ECG on and they're watching us really carefully and they're doing the tests and I'm really nervous. You know, it's, it's not easy, and, but I know it's important. So I do it. And then they check, they see it, they identify it. They're like, yep, that's got the pattern in the ECG. That's Brigada syndrome. And right then and there, because I had a cardiac arrest and because I had the Brigada pattern, um, they knew they had to give me an ICD, that implantable cardio defibrillator. And in simple terms, what is Brigada syndrome? Yeah, in simple terms, it's just just like bad wiring in a car. So the heart, mm -hmm. the, the heart's completely fine. The engine's fine. It pumps fine, no problem. But the the little heart muscles that uh, actually do the signaling to actually start the, the contraction in your muscle, mm. they take up little sodium and uh, potassium uh, ions. And in Brigada syndrome, they just don't work so well. Mm. <laughs> they don't messes, really know why. messes with the electrical activity. Yeah. So the electrical activity is also really weird that it'll look fine in the majority of the heart, but then one spot, it won't work properly. And it all it takes is like one faulty wiring. It's just like a short circuit. And it can set the rhythm into a, a exactly. dangerous, abnormal uh, rhythm, which then exactly. can lead to that sudden cardiac arrest. And it's it's rare and it's inherited. Have you um, been able to establish um, how, how you got the condition? No. So... My mom and dad were requested to get their uh, genes sequenced. Mm. They're this. in Canada? They are in Canada, mm -hmm. and they both declined, which is a shame. Why? They won't tell me. Um, maybe they don't want to know if they have it. Um, I don't know, but they didn't do it. Um, my sister did it, though, mm. but she didn't do the gene test. She did the, uh, the, kind of the flecainide uh, test, which mm -hmm. is like the testing if she has it because she was having children and she was worried she was going to pass it on. She showed up negative. Mm -hmm. The other thing is they wanted to do that test, that flecainide test to, or agimeline is kind of the same sort of thing to mm -hmm. uh, my mom and dad and they both refused. So sometimes your parents don't want to do it. Maybe they're afraid of the test mm. because they know their son had a problem. Mm. I mean, I can't justify why they did that. I wouldn't do that if I was a parent. But you, you would like them to do the test? Absolutely. Yeah. I don't think it would have shown um, anything that would have changed mm. the current understanding of Brigada, but it might in the future because yeah. that's really important is that maybe the data now won't be useful, but it might be useful for the next child or sure. the next person. Pure pure speculation, but it um, could be guilt that they don't want to do it knowing that they've perhaps passed it on to you. But I don't know. No. I don't know. I don't have a good rational answer. I don't know. No. Um, and then... 
you're realizing the enormity of what's happened when you're leaving hospital and um, you've said that you needed to learn how to live again from speech therapy and cognitive therapy. Can you just give me a brief insight into those moments when you're figuring out who you are again? Yeah, so this is this is actually a bigger hurdle than even the the whole thing in the hospital because you leave the hospital, right? They've done their job, right? The hospital's done their job. They put an ICD in you and you're on. You're off your way. That's the best they can do. Regatta mm -hmm. doesn't have any kind of medication. It's just that's it. And they teach you some things about, you know, don't do this, don't do that. And mm -hmm. then you're off. But, you know, that's only like a... <laughs> You know, that's important, but it's only the first like 10% of your, the rest of the mm. problems you're going to have to deal with. And I was so lucky to have Alice beside me this whole time because I came out with 45 minutes of no flow, of no proper blood flow to my brain. So I have all these kind of psychological and cognitive problems to deal with. I'm super lucky that I have, you know, I came out of it not having the worst brain damage, but I do have some. Mm. And so they kind of, how it works in the hospital or in the NHS is that they, they kind of give you, okay, you're going to be referred to ABC uh, as kind of like uh, your uh, kind of the next six months you're going to go and do these things to help you out, mm. right? But I have to admit that Alice was really adamant and she supported me and she was she's been educated and knowledgeable on what was needed so she chased for speech language therapy she chased for cognitive behavioral therapy she chased for psychiatry mm. she chased all the things that i kind of needed from the healthcare system to help me mm. um and it wasn't as simple as like you know oh you've just been referred and that's it like you it, i wish it was but it's a bit more difficult. You have to there's kind of chase these things. There's paperwork and there's bureaucracy and there's appointments. Yeah, and, and it's it. a significant problem. What if someone, what if Alice was, you know, if I didn't have Alice, yeah. you know? Um, she did all this and she did that and she did that while she had to work. And, you mm. know, she's traumatized from the situation as well. And so she has to get through this. I'm learning basic things again at home. Mm. You know, I'm exhausted. I've lost tons of weight in the hospital. Um I'm paranoid. She takes time off work to help. Hmm. I'm lucky to have her family around. So they like help as much as they can. But my family's in Canada and they don't help, hmm. uh, which is, is which was a real shame. Hmm. Um, as in they, they can't help because they're not here. Yeah, but they could have. So hmm. I don't want to go into that too much. But basically sure. they could have stayed and helped. But I understand they had other things. But um, hmm. I'll never kind of really get over that. They, they, uh, but I was really lucky. It doesn't matter. I was really lucky for Alice to, um, to be there for me because she championed all this all mm. on her own. And she had to deal with her own problems at work and her own problems, you know, dealing with, you know, witnessing this, yeah. witnessing her husband of seven days do this. And then yeah. on top, she's just amazing. She's and strong. I, I appreciate all this. And it, it took a long time for me to kind of recognize mm. she did all these things for me. You know, if I didn't have her, I wouldn't have ever been as good as I am today. Mm. And then Corey, January, 2020, you're playing ice hockey again. Tell me, yeah. tell, me <laughs> so, tell, tell, tell me about yeah, January, sure. 2020. So this is 2020. It's like four years later. So I had a year and a bit off of doing anything because I was mm. too paranoid. And then I finally started building confidence up going like, okay, maybe I can do a jog. Mm. And then I started going up from that. I'm like, okay, I can do maybe some swimming. And then I got up a bit more. I'm like, okay, cycle and then um my my one true love outside of alice is ice hockey i love it i live it i breathe it it's my mm. favorite thing in the world and um i went back to the london devils and i reviewed it with dr Albert and i said like what could i do mm. to play can i play more casual you know can we do some tests can we do exercise tests they did all these tests mm. and they found out like i didn't have any cardiac arrests for now two years or what they call mm. like car um ventricular fibrillation didn't have anything sure. like that so they had, they monitor you with your icd you have a little monitor at home and they they take data like telemetry from you and, and they mm. check if you're having you know shocks and stuff because if i am they come straight back in and they, they tune me up or they figure out what they can do and so it's really important that 
you keep that thing plugged in mm. <laughs> at home. So they they do all that, and then uh, I didn't have any significant in- incidents in mm. like two years. So it's medically thought. cleared. That was my next uh, question because yeah, so I can always cleared. hear the um, the British right? Heart Foundation um, cardiac nurses who who <laughs> give sign off on these podcasts. They they want to make sure that. Uh, our guests have been given um, yeah, special I mean, sign-off before jumping back into, you know, um, these these uh, big pursuits. I have to admit, right? I have to admit that I was given an okay, but it was with a very big caveat. Sure. Right? The caveat was casual, easy, under a certain heartbeat, mm-hmm. minute per minute for me, which was considered stable as okay. Yep. Don't do anything more. And I, you know what? I abided by that really well, like religiously. I never went above the 165 beats a minute ever yep. uh, for years, steady state. But that it's not scientific, you know? Mm. It's just like hand-waving. So if I really wanted to be safe, I'd go a bit lower and be a bit more practical mm. and probably not do up and down. Because the problem with Brigada syndrome is up and down stuff. So mm. it's like you sprint and you stop. And then when you stop, that's when you usually have the cardiac arrest. Mm-hmm. So you can't sprint forever. <laughs> and you can't just slow down and jog because it's still, it's kind of the come down mm. where you get the cardiac arrest. That's just like what happened to me, right? I was at that face off and then I had the cardiac arrest. I didn't have it while, you know, chasing a person in a corner or something. Mm. So with all that in mind, they were like, yeah, it's okay to do really casual ice hockey. Mm. But, but I don't think that that was... I think I should have made the decision not to do it. Sure. So anyway, so I play. I'm. I go back to the London Devils and I say, "Hey, can I can I join again? You know, these are all the conditions. I'll make sure, but I'm not going to play any games, et cetera, et cetera." So they they were reluctant and they still said okay because I was good friends with them, so they let me in. Mm. They all knew what I had, and I played more casual, but that wasn't enough. So after about uh, about a year of playing, maybe a bit less. Mm. I felt great. It was just after New Year's. It was January 2020. I was saying Happy New Year to everybody on the team. This mm. is the first game back. I felt like a like a million bucks. I was this was super super excited. Mm. Uh, I play. I go above my heart limit because I was excited on this first shift, and mm. I got back on the bench, and I just felt like Oof, I can feel this wave of lightheadedness, almost mm. like if you. I don't know, stand up too quickly or you're getting choked out. It's just this really like, oh my God. And I knew it at that mm. point that something was going to happen. So I, I got into like a recovery position on the on the bench, mm. on the on the ground. And I said, it's happening. And and then boom, I went into like the deepest sleep you can imagine. And I thought I was, I thought I was in the, uh, done. Like, uh, mm. and then I got, and then this boom happened. I didn't feel it. And then I was up and then this adrenaline just, wave of adrenaline went right through me hmm. so i felt like i had a thousand coffees and then uh i'm sitting there and and the, my whole team's watching me and they're all you know blue in the face scared for me hmm. and uh <laughs> my the goal the goalie comes by his name we call him beast but he <laughs> his name's oleg and he uh he gave me uh some smelling salts and I was like I don't need these right now <laughs> the smelling salts from the base yes <laughs> it's like oh geez so I'm sitting there and they're, they're taking my, my skates off and stuff and they're like yeah. are you okay are you okay are you okay and 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 this really really lovely uh teammate his name's Michael mm. uh Michael Fox uh, Higgins and he he uh helps me gets into the ambulance with me ambulance comes by I walked to the ambulance I'm like hey guys I'm fine mm. like the device did the job yeah, you know, I didn't even feel it because the I was ICD out. has saved yeah, your life here. Saved my life. It's, mm. It was within like the, the, my teammates say that I went down and it shocked me within like two seconds, three hmm. seconds. And this is and the I only time. Up. This is the only time you've been shocked. It's been the only time. Okay. And 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 hopefully that remains the case. But good yeah. to know that it's it's there um, in case uh, yeah. your heart does go into and that, that was the last rhythm. day. That was the last day that I played ice hockey, and okay. that is completely okay with me. Have you <laughs> given up other? Do you, do you run? What sport do you do? Can you? Yeah. Do so I don't. I can't play any like five aside or any stuff like that because it's too much up and down. Yeah. Which sucks because those are my favorite sports. Doing yeah. the team based sports. So I changed. Um, we did a lot of. You know, we had to do a lot of reviews again and uh, hard looks in the mirror of like, you know, I have to accept who I am and what my body can do. And mm. so we went through like what is possible, what's not possible again, and then I decided to get into like steady state, low impact low intensity sports. So Mm. I do cycling now and uh, I do it with a social group. Mm. And um, 
it's been great. It's been a real good stress relief for me, but it's nice and long and slow. I don't do anything serious uh, and I really enjoy it. So, mm. And I, I do some other stuff, um, like I do rock climbing, but again, nice and nice, nice and, and slow, none, yeah. no bursting around, you know, and I don't do any like serious running. I just do some nice jogs. And yeah. you know what? It's quite a fascinating is my brother-in-law, he's obsessed with like ultra endurance marathons and stuff. And he's, mm. he's been evangelizing about slow and steady um, fitness and that's yeah. the way to get cardio cardio better and i think he's right because i mm. feel more fit now than ever mm. because uh the slow and steady is useful man it's yeah really good. wins the race as they say yeah, yeah. <laughs> um now we've gone well over half an hour Corey, but i want to know about your work because funnily enough it does relate somewhat to your condition can you tell me about that so I work in uh, for a company uh, called Genomics England, which we are commissioned to do all the whole genome sequencing for very rare and inherited disorders, as well as specific cancers for the NHS. And um, I work across the kind of software and bioinformatics landscape in the company. Mm. And so we cover a lot of stuff. We have sudden cardiac death. Um, on there or sudden cardiac arrest on there. We have gene panels on Brigada. Um, we have them on long QT, ARBC, uh, hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, um, all those things. Um, now, it, it's interesting because we, when a sample is taken from a consenting patient, we will do whole genome sequencing, um, but we, we keep that data to do research and find out if we can maybe find something new. Mm. Um, maybe there's a, di a different diagnosis. Maybe we can rule out specific mutations we thought before were causative. Um, and so it's really good and rewarding work. It's not like, oh, you know, it's not like the... You have a very, you have a mutation or whatever, and bam, we know how to solve you. Mm. Uh, it's not as simple as that. Um, I wish it was, but Brugada syndrome is a bit of a pickle, so it it doesn't look like it's a single gene or a single uh, mutation. Mm. It's going to be a very complex, and we're still trying to find out more information about sure. it. Sure. And how does it feel knowing that uh, Professor Elijah Bear, who's funded by the British Heart Foundation, is doing um, BHF research into Brugada? Does that give you some? hope and confidence for the future. It does, yeah. It really does. It, it's really nice to see very smart people motivated um, to, to help because if you think about it, it's such a rare disorder, but it's such a terrible one. And it, a lot of people will never get diagnosed that mm. this exists because they pass away and we don't know why. Mm. You know, the fact that I survived makes me a good guinea pig. Um, so anyone who really survives these terrible ordeals it's really, really important to help science and help, you know, the, the, anything we can do on research because um, the more data, the better we are uh, mm. at finding a cure or finding something that can help us or help with screening. Screening mm. would have been a lifesaver for me. Mm. I, maybe they can't do anything about Brigada, but maybe if I you could had have known had a, earlier and had maybe an I could ICD, have got an ICD, could have, or maybe I could have always made sure a defibrillator was around. Mm. Like how many times I played sports at a high level as a kid mm. and this didn't happen it all it took was just you know one lightning bolt event and mm. that could have been it so i was very lucky to survive mm. it changes your life that screening so yeah that, that's what's really important what would you say Corey, to someone out there listening who has perhaps been diagnosed with a condition um and it's uh, causing them con some concern what's, what's your words of wisdom with the distance you've got on your diagnosis? I mean, it's difficult because mortality is so much more present in your life than many, many other people. Um, and so I guess my only words of wisdom going through this, and I would never want anyone to, is that it's, it's more important to know what you have and not what you've lost. Mm-hmm matters so much more to appreciate what you have than not what you've lost. And I've part of a lot of survivor groups and it really is a glass half full or glass half empty kind of situation where you'll see, oh, why is it me? Why did it have to be me? It could have been someone else. And then you'll have someone else saying, I'm so thankful I've made it mm. and I'm going to change the way I live. And I recommend that the, uh, <laughs> the latter is much, much better um, at getting through life. Hmm. 
you never know what's going to happen. So I think that's really important to have that kind of philosophy. It makes it makes life worth living. And you're now 33. I am. It's six years since uh, you collapsed at the the Stratum yeah. ice hockey rink. Um, great job, wonderful wife. What do the next few years hold in store for for Corey Johnson? Yeah, well, we're looking to have a family, and that's mm-hmm. that's the challenge. Is we haven't talked about that. It's like people who have mm-hmm. genetic disorders. How how are they passed? So Brigada is something called non-penetrant, which means it may not pass to the next next child and it's hard to diagnose because we don't know what genes are looking for so it's not as simple as just saying what are you going to do so mm. we're making a decision if we're adopting or not and I have no qualms with adoption so mm. um, we're talking about it now and we want to have a family I want to be around so mm. yeah it's about the simple life now mm. lovely and is there anything that you haven't touched on that you'd like to add I would just have to say that it's so important to have a support network when you have had something like this happen to you and don't fight it alone because you don't know what you're missing. Those That support network will help you through all the things that you don't know how to navigate because you're not aware of them. So Alice and her family were great support networks. They They got me to the right therapies. They made sure I was taken care of at home. They did everything they could to tolerate me as I was frustrated. It's just so important that you don't fight this alone. Mm. Ask for help if you need it. Ask for help and make sure you have it. Hold Mm. on tight. And focus on what you can do rather than what you've lost. Absolutely. Well, Corey, on that note, um, thank you very much for for speaking with me, sharing your story, and and thanks for all your support to the British Heart Foundation. We uh, greatly appreciate it. Thank you. And have a great weekend. Yeah. What are you doing? (laughs) <laughs> I'm seeing Frankie Boyle on Sunday. Lovely. Com- I love Frankie Boyle. Yeah, so. have a bit of a laugh. Yeah, so there's a comedy event in Greenwich, so mm-hmm. I'm doing that. Yeah, hopefully it'll be a good, good weekend. I'm doing a cycling thing tomorrow with the Sid Cup cycling. Okay, Bruce, nice and easy, yeah. slow and steady. Yeah, that's how it is. Good man, good man. We'll enjoy it and um, we'll speak to you shortly. All right, thank you for this. Appreciate it. As Corey mentioned, he was lucky. But for many people who unknowingly are living with Brigada syndrome or other inherited heart conditions, a sudden cardiac arrest is often the first and final symptom, causing a devastating ripple of pain for friends and family who have lost a loved one. The British Heart Foundation's research into Brigada syndrome and other genetic conditions is making good progress, leading to better screening and treatments. And crucially, it's offering hope. Hope that such conditions one day may well be a thing of the past but much work still needs to be done. If you've got any questions or concerns about your heart or circulatory health and would like to speak with a cardiac nurse on the BHF's heart helpline, go to our website at bhf.org.uk slash heart helpline and you'll find all of the contact options there. You'll also find useful information on our vital research in the episode notes and on our website bhf.org.uk. And thanks to Amy and Jason, who recently got in touch with us. We're glad you found the podcast a source of comfort and reassurance during a difficult time. It's for you too, and for the many people out there with heart conditions and their friends and family, that we make the podcast. We'd also love to hear from others. If you've got your own heart story or have any thoughts on this episode, do get in touch with us by email at theTickerTapes at bhf.org.uk. See you next time on The Ticker Tapes. <laughs>